0: You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, good morning. How many of you are feeling a little tired this morning? All right. This is the 1130 crew. No shame. I love it. Well, um, did you know? Funny enough, that prior to the invention of the light bulb in 1879 by Thomas Edison, the average person slept 11 hours per night. Like, you heard that right. Fun fact of the day, 11 hours per night. Seems so crazy, so foreign to us. Uh, The average American now sleeps seven hours a night. I don't know how us Canadians are doing, but maybe it's worse, I don't know. Uh, But we live in a part of the world that can be characterized by busyness, hustle, and anxiety. We wear workaholism as a badge of honor where efficiency and productivity are signs of being a high-capacity person. Now, what else? Well, in the 1960s, key thinkers believed that in the future, we'd be working a lot less because of how quickly technology was developing. There was even a uh, Senate subcommittee in 1967 that theorized by the year 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week, 27 weeks a year. Isn't that hilarious? So what happened? Well, technology continued to improve, and that allowed us to accomplish more and more in less time. But now we're working almost four weeks more than we did in 1979. So what happened is we traded time for money. And the result is that we feel hurried, restless, angry, anxious, depressed, And burnt out with little if any time left over for anything else including Jesus now John Ortberg says this he says for many of us the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it we will just skim our lives instead of actually living them So I ask you, are you anxious and restless, burning the wick at both ends, finding that you have no margin in your life, maybe struggling to hear God's voice? I gently want to encourage you to zoom out for a moment and think about what you want to be remembered for. Pastor Sam led our staff through an exercise a couple months ago where we had to think about our own funeral, like who's, who's there And who's reading your eulogy? And what are they saying about you? Was your life primarily characterized by work, money, achievements, or by being a person of love, humility, and one whose life reflected the character of Christ? It really forces us to think about what's important in life. Now, the reality is you don't become a person like that just by accident. If we want to be like Christ, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Christ. And to that end, I want to take a look at two practices this morning from the life of Jesus that can help. We've been in a series called A New Humanity, taking a look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today we find ourselves in Matthew 6, 5 to 18. So I want to invite you to stand uh, with me as we read this passage. So this is the word of the Lord this morning. and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, you can take a seat. And so this morning, I want to show that prayer and fasting are central practices to a life of discipleship to Jesus. And I want to unpack this rich text for us this morning. I feel like this could be two separate sermons, honestly, like one on prayer and one on fasting. Uh, But it's going to be one. So buckle up. It's going to be a long one. Just a warning, all right? Uh, I'm just going to be scratching the surface, but I'm going to attempt to answer three questions. Number one, why do we pray and fast? Number two, what happens when we pray and fast? And thirdly, how do we pray and fast? So why do we pray and fast? If we back up to Matthew 6, 1, we're gonna see that the opening line of Jesus' words about giving to the needy is also relevant context for a passage today. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus carries forward this principle when he begins speaking about prayer. He says in verse 5 here, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And then he goes on in verse 16 and has the same principle uh, with fasting. Now, is Jesus saying that we should never pray in public? Of course not. Otherwise, the prayer that we just heard from from the stage would be forbidden. What Jesus is doing is he's calling out the Pharisees for putting on public displays of prayer for the purpose of being seen as holy and righteous before others. So there were actually scheduled times of prayer back in the day for Jews uh, during the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. And so what would happen is if you were in the streets when it was the hour of prayer, you had to face the temple, stop what you were doing, and pray. And so the Pharisees, like, they, they were sneaky right? So they would be like, okay, three o'clock's coming up, like prayer time, it's, it's you know, about to happen. They'd like go to the middle of uh, Times Square or whatever, and just wait, right? Okay, it's three o'clock, now I've got to start praying, and everyone's going to be looking at them, right? And so they were in very visible places during these times to display their devotion. This was spiritual pride, and Jesus hates spiritual pride. What does Jesus say about them? He says, they have received their reward in full. Now, this was confusing for me at first. At first glance, it sounds like Jesus is condoning this behavior, that they're rewarded for it. But he's not. He's actually saying they will have no reward from God. Instead, they will have no reward. They have received the affirmation of people, and that's all they're going to get, which is super sad. And Jesus says the same thing about their fasting. They have received their vain reward. He calls them out for disfiguring their faces. I don't know if they were making monkey faces or what they were doing, but in some way, they were disfiguring their faces to show that they were fasting to be seen by others. And so to begin answering our question, why do we pray and fast? It's not to gain the approval of others, and it's not for our own glory. Jesus is saying that our prayer life is a matter of the heart, our motives in prayer and fasting matter. The question is, are we praying to an audience of one regardless of whether we are in our room alone with the door closed or whether we're in the middle of the city square? Because when we, when we start thinking uh, about who's watching or who's listening to our prayers, we're missing the point because we're shifting our gaze off of God and onto ourselves. Now here's what Jesus says next. It's both challenging and comforting. He says, "And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him." And so the pagan Gentiles. They would use long lists of divine names as they prayed, hoping that through their mindless repetition, they would correctly pronounce uh, the name of one of their gods who would then grant their request. And so in this way, they could manipulate their gods, or so they thought. And against this, Jesus is saying, your heavenly Father already knows what you need. Now, this isn't meant to discourage us from asking, but to prevent us from thinking that we need to manipulate or somehow can manipulate God in prayer. We don't need to throw around eloquent language or long prayers for God to hear us. And we shouldn't have to dress up our prayers just to sound good in front of others. Our prayers don't need to sound pretty, they just need to be simple and honest. Isn't that relieving? We don't have to perform for God. We're just having a conversation with him like we would another person. God is relational. He made us. We were made to commune with him. Maybe that's news for some of us this morning. Like we were made by the creator for relationship with the creator. And this is one of the reasons why we pray and fast for intimacy with God. The Lord's Prayer opens by encouraging us to address God as Father as a loving, good, kind, compassionate Father who deeply cares for us. And so prayer and fasting are invitations to intimacy with the triune God, an intimacy with God that leads to peace and joy, not restlessness and worry like our culture is marked by. In prayer, we we can bear our souls before the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, the one who delights in us and calls us precious sons and daughters of the Most High. And it's the same with fasting. You may think of of fasting as, as praying with your body. And so when we fast, which, by the way, is from food, right? Like it's not from Netflix or social media or video games, although it's good to refrain from those things, If you're doing that, we would call that abstinence. But fasting, biblically speaking, is from food. And so when we fast, we commune with God. And Jesus shows this when he's asked in Matthew chapter 9 why his disciples don't fast like the Pharisees and John's disciples. And this is his reply. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so if you're not familiar with this, the New Testament actually portrays the relationship between Christ and the church as a marriage, where the church is likened to a bride, and Christ, the bridegroom. So with this context in mind, Jesus is saying that the disciples didn't need to fast while he was with them in the flesh. Why? Because he was near. He was in their midst. They already had intimacy with him. But a day will come when Jesus will ascend to the Father, send the Holy Spirit, and in that time, he expects that his disciples will fast as they long for his presence, as they long for intimacy with him, just as a bride misses her bridegroom from afar. How exactly does this work? Like, what's going on there? Well, when we fast, we sacrifice food to allow God to be our portion. Fasting rids us of something that we depend on to live and to function so that we would instead depend on God. If you take a look at uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you guys remember this from like high school or middle school, right? Okay, yeah, like first time busting it out since then, but hey, it came in handy. So sermons, come on. Um, right at the base, that's like, For our survival as human beings, this is what we need, like at a primal level, right? We need air, water, food, the list goes on. So food is one of those things. Like if we don't eat, like we're going to die at some point, right? And so when you go without food, willingly, right, you're going to get desperate. And it's in that desperation that you realize your need for God, right? When Jesus was tempted in the desert... Um, you say, hey, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every, every word that comes from, from God, right? And so it's in this that we can allow Jesus to be our bread of life, the one who satisfies. And so although fasting is a bodily discipline, it largely affects the soul, The echo of your soul when you fast sounds something like Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And so prayer and fasting are pathways to intimacy with God. But we often wait until we have intimacy with God before we obey him, don't we? But the inverse is true in the kingdom. Like, we can't have intimacy without obedience. It's actually our obedience that paves the way to intimacy with God. And so, what do I mean? Well, Jesus assumed that his followers would fast. Note that the text says when you fast, not if you fast. But for many of us, we don't pray and fast for a number of reasons. And I wish I could spend 20 minutes on this, but here's a few things quickly. We're too busy, right? We live in this hustle culture. Number two, it feels boring, right? It's the summer. We could be paddle boarding. We could be hiking. We could be playing spike ball. Um, these are the things I do. Um, but there's any number of things we could be doing other than prayer and fasting. Number three, we're afraid of intimacy with God, even though we know we need it and want it. But we're afraid. Fourth, we don't know where to start. More on this later when we talk about the How? Or perhaps most significantly we're cynical. Either we don't believe prayer and fasting really changes anything, maybe that's like kind of your theology that like God already knows what's gonna happen, prayer doesn't move the needle, neither does fasting. I would argue scripture presents a totally different case. But maybe maybe it's because we don't believe prayer and fasting actually changes anything, or we've been disappointed and we've experienced deep pain because our most heartfelt prayers weren't answered. And if this has been your experience, before I go any further, I want you to know that God is, he's so compassionate, has so much compassion and love for you. Like, unanswered prayer is real, and it's a mystery, and it's hard. Disappointment is real. And when it feels like God has let us down, it's hard to turn back to him, isn't it? Now, while I don't have the answer for why God didn't answer your most desperate, heartfelt prayer, I do know these two things. Number one, Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Like, no other religion can say that. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He knows your pain, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Like, even the first part of Jesus' prayer to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't answered. Father, if it be possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. We know the second part of the prayer is, nonetheless, not my will be done, but yours. Right, but this first part of the prayer, hey, if there's any other way, Father, like, I'll take it, rather than going through with this painful suffering, that wasn't answered. Second thing I know is we worship the God of all comfort according to 2 Corinthians 1. As I've said, there's a mystery to prayer, and not every prayer will be answered in the way that we hope, but a promise of Scripture is that if if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. This is James 4.8. So if you let him, and I know it's vulnerable, if you let him, he will comfort you and bring healing to your wounded heart. 1 Peter 2.24, amazing verse, says it is by his wounds that we are healed. We worship a wounded healer, one who can identify with us in our pain. Now having said all this, I wanna inspire you to pray and fast by telling you what can happen when we do. So what happens when we pray and fast? Well, prayer and fasting isn't a magic bullet or a formula to manipulate God. But we cannot escape the scriptural reality that when we couple prayer with fasting, there is a potency, there is a power that accesses heaven and touches earth. Allow me to point you to some passages and testimonies of the people of God over the course of history that demonstrate when we pray and fast, God responds. The kingdom breaks in. Breakthrough happens that could not otherwise be had. In Judges chapter 20, Yahweh turns the tables for the people of Israel as they're engaged in battle with the tribe of Benjamin after a night of weeping, sacrifice, and fasting, and delivers them into their hands. In 1 Samuel 7, we see Israel repent, turn toward God, and fast. The very next day, they defeat the Philistines. While in exile, after hearing of the destroyed state of Jerusalem, Nehemiah prays and fasts, repents on behalf of Israel, and asks the Lord for favor from King Artaxerxes. He's then granted permission by the king to return to Jerusalem and begin building the city walls. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples that some demons only come out through prayer and fasting. Scripture is littered with examples of prayer and fasting leading to breakthrough and God responding. Now, how about some examples from the last century? Jonathan Tremaine Thomas, he's a pastor from Missouri, and he leads a a biblical justice organization called Civil Righteousness. And what they do is they will research the history of a community. So for them, they're, you know, based in Missouri, and they'll identify the pain points and Places where tragic, defining things took place in the city. Then they'll go to those locations, pray over them, repent, and take communion, claiming the blood of Christ. And they've seen cities change. They've seen hostilities break between people groups. There's even a story uh, that he was sharing of of, um, a hotel in St. Louis on one of the most violent streets in the whole country where murder happens like all the time and there's this hotel where sex trafficking and prostitution take place and 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 they would go and they would pray at this hotel and they felt the holy spirit saying come back like every saturday and keep praying so they did this for a couple months they show up in the third month and there's bulldozers bulldozing the hotel over incredible hey this is prayer and fasting Gets better. Cali, Colombia, 1991. The drug cartel is controlling the entire country. It's the richest and most well-run criminal organization in history at the time. Kidnappings, tortures, homicides were happening daily, up to 15 murders per day. Colombia was the world's largest exporter of cocaine at the time. And what was the state of the church? Small. 50,000 Christians in a population of 2 million in the city of Cali. And the church wasn't exactly unified. In March of 1995, there was an all-night prayer meeting <clears throat> that was held in the Cali Coliseum. They were expecting 2,000 people to show up, but 25,000 people showed up. Now, 48 hours, like two days after this prayer event, for the first time in as long as anyone could remember, the newspaper read, no homicides. Shortly thereafter, the first drug lord falls. A little bit after that, the remaining six fall. 900 cartel-linked police officers are fired from the force. Eventually, the cartels move away. The economy is restored. In subsequent prayer events, people are getting up out of their wheelchairs and walking. The deaf begin to hear. People are dropping their canes. Thousands are coming to Christ. Not only this, but the fruit was growing three to four times the size of what it normally was. I think we have a weak theology of land, but isn't that crazy, God blesses the land? God responds to the corporate prayers of his people, reversed the homicide rate, brings life, brought healing to others, blessed the land, and in the process, united the Colombian church. This is what prayer and fasting can do. Listen to the words of Isaiah in 58.6. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? We don't have to go at injustice with violence. Sometimes it's prayer and fasting that is enough to change a country. Like, I want you guys to be inspired. Like, look at what can happen when you pray and fast. This is what God calls us to, to pray and to fast, that injustice would be reversed. So the question I ask is why is it that the practice of fasting has virtually disappeared from the Western church? Did you know that in the early church, Christians fasted twice a week until sundown? Like, for many of us, we haven't even fasted twice before. This is what they did every week. They would fast on Wednesdays and Fridays in remembrance of Jesus' betrayal on the Wednesday and his crucifixion on the Friday. And it also set them apart from the Pharisees who would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Because you don't want to be like those guys, right? (laughs) So for nearly all of church history, this is just what Christians did. And if you look beyond the Western church, you will see a church that fasts. The persecuted church, fast. The church surrounded by injustice, fast. The church that faces demonic oppression overtly and head on, fast. North America is one of the few places on the planet that has largely abandoned this ancient practice of discipleship to Jesus. Is it such a mystery that the North American church is often seen by the rest of the world as busy, exhausted, and with so little power? We struggle to sacrifice and give things up because we swim against the tide of radical individualism and comfort. And isn't food such an idol in our context as well? I think this is why the general attitude towards uh, fasting sounds something like, hey, that's all well and good, but it's just not for me. You know, like, that's what they did back then, but like, it's not for me. Like, I get hungry after a couple hours, like, you know, I don't want to get hangry. That's the point. Like, stuff's coming up. Stuff surfacing so Jesus can deal with it. But let me ask you, if you're feeling dry in your walk with God, if you're not hearing his voice, have you prayed and fasted? If you're facing a big decision and you're still not sure which way to go, have you prayed and fasted? If there's a wall that you keep running into in your life, whether it's a sin, a difficult relationship, maybe it's holding on to control, have you prayed and fasted? Side note on this, if you're struggling with porn or a sexual sin, fasting is one of the best things you can do. Why? Because you learn to discipline the desires of the flesh. In our age of instant gratification, you, you train yourself to not always give in to what you, your body craves. Fasting teaches us self-control and not to give in to every urge that we feel. It's actually discipline that brings freedom. So I want us to see fasting not as an optional side dish to our discipleship, not as an appetizer, but as a central practice that we can't live without. Prayer coupled with fasting forms us, deepens our intimacy with God, helps us discipline the flesh, allows us to better hear His voice, and leads to breakthrough. We see that Jesus fasted, the early church fasted, the global church has fasted for basically all of history, our brothers and sisters across the world fast, and Jesus expects that we'll fast just as he expected that we'll give to the needy and pray. It's right in the context of the passage. The same Jesus who preached the Sermon on the Mount is the same Jesus who's speaking to us today. And this is an area that I've been convicted in. And to be honest, like, I'm pretty new to this. Uh, Like, I'm on the journey with you. But I also know that one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to teach sound doctrine and to help the sheep follow the Good Shepherd. And this is an area where our orthopraxy has to meet our orthodoxy. We have to practice what we preach or what we hear Jesus preach. And I believe that God is shining a light on this neglected spiritual discipline and calling his church back to prayer and fasting. Like, I don't know about you, but have you seen the state of the Western church? We've all seen the attempts of the church to be more relevant, flashier, attractive in efforts to reach more people, but these methods are not working. There's this haunting quote that I heard by David Kinnaman, president of the Barna Group, which is a Christian think tank on statistics. And he was saying that the church is in a state of irreversible decline and that bar a genuine move of God and radical discipleship, we've lost the church. We can't get it back by human means. Like, like this is the guy. Like, this is the guy who's got the stats, who does the studies, who does the polls. And this is what he's saying. And so the hour is now for the church to start praying and fasting. It's time to head to the prayer closet. It's time to gather as the body of Christ and ask God to do what only he can do. Not only is the church in a desperate spot, but so too is our city. Just look at the loneliness, the mental health crisis, the denigration of the body, the void of purpose. People are screaming for meaning. People are screaming for life. And Jesus is life. Our city is in desperate need of Jesus. Listen to this quote by Tyler Staten, pastor from Bridgetown in Portland. He says, every great move of God in church history, every revival and awakening follows a common pattern. The church catches fire, leading to an increased priority in prayer, resulting in an outpouring of the Spirit on a city. Now, do you long for that? Like, to see the Spirit of God, like, hovering over the Tri-Cities, transforming lives, like, blessing the land like reversing injustices, like healing people, drawing people into the kingdom? Like I do. I want you to think about that. Like what would it look like if our church was fasting for this week in and week out, that people would know the living God? Want that to percolate in your heart and mind. Now normally this would be where I'd stop the sermon and like, you know, we'd like have a response just like kinda put put a pin in it, okay? But I gotta get to the practical stuff. So how do we pray and fast? You're in good company because even the disciples wondered that too, right? In Luke 11, one, one of Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. And so the disciples didn't ask, hey, how do we plant churches? How do we lead? How do we, you know, whatever it is. Like, how do we preach, yeah. But they ask, how how do we pray? Teach us to pray. And here on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his followers to pray. And while this is a model or a template to follow, I'd also encourage you to just recite this prayer often the way it is. Sometimes we're afraid of like formal liturgical prayers lest they become rote and mechanical. But again, it's a matter of the heart. The literal Greek translation before Jesus lays out the prayer is, whenever you pray, recite this. This prayer has been recited throughout church history and it has the power to form us and shape us if it isn't done mindlessly. Now what's interesting is that in this prayer we get a front row seat to see how God the Son communicates with God the Father through the Spirit. So the Trinity is communicating in this prayer. Now right off the bat, You should notice that in this prayer there are you petitions toward God and we petitions toward each other. Prayer is meant to be both vertical, praying for God's glory, and horizontal, blessing others. Here's the way that Scott McKnight kind of summarizes it. He says, those who love God yearn for his name to be sanctified, his kingdom to come, and his will to be done. Those who love others yearn for their daily bread, their reciprocal forgiveness, their growth in holiness, and their deliverance from the evil one. So what I'm going to do at this point is I'm going to kind of go like line by line through the Lord's Prayer and just give like a few thoughts, all right? I wish I could spend like the whole sermon on this, but we just got a few things each, each phrase here. So, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is all about adoration and praise. Uh, It starts with our Father Our father, Abba, is the term for father in Aramaic. And this was an intimate, affectionate term that children would call their fathers by in the same way that we would, you know, sometimes refer to uh, our father as daddy when we're young. We were adopted children of God. And prayer is deeply relational. Did you know that um, all of Jesus' prayers actually began with father, except his cry on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I just learned that like last week studying for this. Every one of his prayers, our Father. It's out of intimacy with our Father that we pray. But we begin not with our own needs, not with a laundry list, but with God's glory and honor. Remember, prayer and fasting isn't about our glory like the Pharisees made it. So what does it mean to hallow God's name? To honor it, to sanctify it to set it apart, to treat it with respect, to lift high God's name. In essence, we are to start by asking the Father to glorify his name. God reveals himself in the Old Testament as Yahweh or Jehovah, I am who I am, the self-existent one. And Jews revered the name to the point that they wouldn't even pronounce it, lest they take God's name in vain. Now, I think they took it too far, but hey, they had reverence. Now, God also reveals himself in the Old Testament as these names behind me on the screen. Uh, I'm not going to read them all for the sake of time, but take a look. Now, to pray that God's name be hallowed is to pray that the whole world or the whole tri-cities might come to know God like that. And according to Psalm 34.3, we can magnify the Lord and exalt his name. We do this through living godly lives, boasting in the Lord and not ourselves, praising God for who he is and what he's done. So often I'll start my prayers by just thanking God for who he is. Thank you that you're just. Thank you that you're merciful, that you're loving, that you're good, that you're sovereign, that you're healer. We begin prayer with adoration and lifting high God's name. Next line is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is intercession, contending prayer. It's interesting that this line assumes that the Father's will isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven, at least not in full. This is where our already-not-yet theology comes into play, right? The kingdom is breaking in, but it's not fully. So in this line, we're encouraged to intercede and ask God to intervene, to bring his shalom, his peace, in this broken, hurting world. This is where those who mourn over the broken state of the world turn their mourning into prayer and contend for God to intervene. This is where we pray to win, much like in the story from Jonathan Tremaine Thomas or Cali Columbia. Now, it may not be for entire nations or regions. It could be asking for God to intervene in someone's life, to bring healing or to bring reconciliation in a broken relationship. This is what intercession is all about. The next line is, give us this day our daily bread. This is about petition. This is where we ask God to provide for our needs. But sometimes we're afraid to ask, right? We feel like we don't have that kind of access to God, but we do. James, uh, Jesus' brother, says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so we need not be sheepish with our good father, but we're encouraged to ask him who knows how to give good gifts to his children. So what do you need? Is it strength, peace, joy, food, money, concentration, for your car to start? Ask. Um, Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. And on this note, we should pray with such specificity that we can know with certainty whether our prayers were answered or not. Right? Like, we get to the end of the week, we don't even know if our prayers are answered because we're just praying so generally. Um, Now, the risk is disappointment, but, man, like, you can also see a a, a track record of God's faithfulness because he's going to answer some of those prayers. And so, this is where we petition. Next is... Confession and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is where we confess our sins to God knowing that he's already paid our debt in full and knowing that we can't hide anything from the God who knows all. And through our confession, we realize our daily need for grace and our dependence on the Spirit of God to live lives pleasing to him. And then out of this, knowing that we've been forgiven, for the immense debt of sin against God. We also forgive others for the ways that they've sinned against us. We cancel their debts and set them free. We forsake bitterness and grudges and hostility and release our offenders into the care of our Father and pray blessings over them. Isn't that countercultural or what? This is what the upside-down kingdom looks like. It's easier said than done, yes, but we know that at the core of our being, To be a Christian is to be one who forgives. Like, they're synonymous. And it's so important that Jesus qualifies it in verse 14 and 15. Forgiveness isn't optional for a follower of Christ. The last line is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is spiritual warfare. So finally, we pray that God would protect us and rescue us from situations where we will be tempted by the evil one for God himself never tempts. But when we are tempted, we pray that we would be delivered from it, that we would recognize the way out and walk in it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So if you didn't know it, like we're in a spiritual battle, right? Like it's not just that God exists. There's an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy all that God is doing in your life. And so we have, to, we have to wage the weapons of warfare and take up the armor of God and pray against temptation and pray that we would have integrity in times of temptation. Finally, I want to offer you a few practical tips on prayer and fasting, So Christianity is not simply a faith consisting of teaching and knowledge, but is a faith learned through practice. And prayer and fasting are things that we learn by doing. So my first tip is this, start small. So start praying, and the Holy Spirit will teach you. He'll guide you. Pray until you can, right? Whether you've been a Christian 30 years or 30 minutes, like, start where you are. You know, two minutes a day, uh, praising God for who he is, thanking him submitting your petitions, just start where you are. Um, This is a muscle that gets developed as you use it. And for for those of you praying, sometimes it's helpful just to to have a journal if you're not sure what to pray for. You can keep a list of prayer requests that you have or others, um, things that you're grateful for, things that you need to confess, answers to prayer. Now with fasting, if you haven't done it before, I would recommend starting by fasting one meal a week. Like, don't shoot for the moon. Start small. Um, and as you fast that one meal a week, just drink water in between those meals and pray throughout the day. Now, if you fasted before and you want to make it a regular rhythm, I'd suggest a weekly day of fasting from after dinner one night through to dinner the next night where you break your fast. Or maybe for some of you, you want to do the twice a week like most Christians have done for, for history. Um, but that's up to you. Now there is a caution, if you have an unhealthy relationship with food, particularly if you struggle with an eating disorder, you probably shouldn't engage with fasting just yet until there's been redemption and healing in this area of your life. And so um, this is a huge conversation, but I'm just going to refer you to a podcast here. Um, Hopefully the QR code works. I think for the people in the balcony, it might be like too small. but. Uh, it's Dr. Allison Cook. She's a Christian psychologist, and she talks about how do we understand fasting when it comes to you know those who have eating disorders. So uh, if you can't get the QR code, just Google it. Um, podcast on, on fasting, Dr. Allison Cook, and that'll come up. Also, if you're a diabetic, an expectant mother, a nursing mother, or you have heart issues, you should probably also refrain from fasting. My second tip is this. Pray and fast in community. Uh, we all know that it's, it's a lot easier to go to the gym when you have a gym partner. This is why I don't go to the gym, right? Like, I, <laughs> I don't have a gym partner, um, you could probably tell. In the same way, like when we're developing our spiritual muscles, knowing that you're doing it with others helps so much. This is also why you should all get into a community group. Uh, yeah, community groups are good. Um, Now, for those of you that don't know, we actually put out discussion guides each week for community groups. If you just go to like our website and you go to the media page, you'll see the sermon. And then we have a PDF discussion guide that we put up each Monday. And so tomorrow, I'm gonna lay out, hey, here's how you can fast as a group if you wanna do it in community. And so pray and fast in community. Number three, drink water, lots of it. It's important to be hydrated when you're not eating food, you're going to get a lot more thirsty. Uh, Moving on, number four, expect the body to push back. So if you're fasting, you're going to feel some hunger pains. Uh, Your stomach's going to growl a bit, like you're going to feel hungry, but don't worry, you're not starving. Uh, It's just your stomach's way of telling you that you normally eat at these times. And so your stomach's been conditioned over time. Keep pushing through. Now, if you fast for longer periods of time, like beyond 36 hours, it's going to be Harder, um, usually between 36 hours through to three days. That's the hardest period in terms of the physical dis- discomfort. But funny enough, this is actually the body ridding itself of toxic poisons that have accumulated after years of poor eating habits. Like who knew, right? Like it's like fasting's beneficial for your body. It's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about. Hey, um, and that he like designed the body. Um, so just know that. Uh, you also may experience headaches, weakness, occasional dizziness. So move slower. Don't exercise. Like, this isn't the time to go to the gym. Take some time to rest. Uh, but funny enough, you keep pushing through, and you don't have one of those conditions that I mentioned. By day six or seven, you're actually going to feel stronger, more alert, and focused. Your hunger pains will diminish, and it'll actually be quite enjoyable. Like, philosophers used to fast for, like, mental clarity. Um, You're also gonna be prone to feeling colder since your metabolism isn't producing the same amount of heat it's used to. Uh, Another tip, don't stock up uh, before you fast for long periods. Eat slightly less before you begin your fast. And finally, when you end your fast, start small again because the stomach has shrunken, and prioritize fruits and veggies. I don't say that just because I'm a vegetarian. It's just, it's good wisdom. Finally, for real, finally, Number five, remember why you pray and fast. Fasting isn't just about not eating food. Like, it's for the purpose of worship, prayer, communion with God while you abstain from food. If we're not fasting unto God, we're, like, we're doing it wrong. God himself says as much in Zechariah 7.5. You can check it out. We fast for the glory of God. And so take time to pray during the times that you would normally eat. And so I hope that we can see that prayer and fasting has power. And these are spiritual disciplines that cultivate our souls, um, that have the ability to affect change here on earth. And so this is kind of where I'm landing the plane, but I'm gonna invite the band up as we respond. And as a congregation, how I wanna pray us out is let's read the Lord's Prayer out loud together. So we can throw it up on the screen here. And uh, I'll start us off and just join in. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.